Hey guys, Jack here. Uh, lots of exciting news. So first I just wanted to remind everybody that Peter O'Neill, an excellent online player and myself, have been teaming up to do the Just Hands stream Wednesdays from 9 to 11 at twitch.tv slash justhandspoker. And that's really an excellent opportunity to see us uh, encounter some more pedestrian spots that don't end up, you know, making the podcast, but are extremely important. Uh, and we both try and go into as much detail as we can, you know, throughout the stream. And so I think it's just a really great opportunity to pick up on some of our strategy. And Peter and I have been enjoying streaming so much that I think we're going to just, you know, up our volume a little bit and do some impromptu streaming uh, over the weekends and just, you know, whenever. And the way to you know, make sure you catch that. Uh, one, you know, all the streams are archived on Twitch and will soon be archived on our YouTube channel that we're working on. More to come about that next week. Uh, but you can also follow us on Twitter, Just Hands Poker, and, you know, we'll be tweeting whenever we decide to stream. Also, I wanted to remind you guys that uh, we have a couple new regular installments on our blog. Uh, every Tuesday, we're going to be releasing a blog post that accompanies the episode where Zach and I alternate doing a slightly more in-depth and uh, software-oriented analysis uh, of the week's hand. Also, on Thursdays, Zach and I are going to be alternating a more in-depth uh, strategy or other topic, you know, extended article. So for some examples, last week uh, I posted an, ar- an article about 10 mistakes your opponents are making and how to let them, one, not become your own mistake, and two, how to maximally exploit that mistake. And this week, Zach is doing a post about how to get the most information possible from just one hand. Uh, so this is some really great information. I highly recommend you guys tune into the blog to check out. And remember, you can find our blog at justhandspoker.com forward slash strategy. Uh, finally, our friend John Metz has just gone pro and is going to be doing a weekly installment about that transition. And uh, there'll be some strategy, just some personal stuff. And John's a really awesome person. Uh, Very worth checking that out. Finally, just a couple run-of-the-mill things. Remember, you can always come to our website, justhandspoker.com. That's where the blog is. That's also where you can submit your hand histories. uh, We'll respond to those hand histories whether or not we put them on the show. You can check out information about our live event with Greg Raymer, and you can comment on some of our new blog posts, particularly the software analysis post, uh, where we're hoping to start a more in-depth strategy discussion, have somewhere where you know people can weigh in on the hands. All right. Thanks for listening, uh, and enjoy this episode with our special guest, Dave Karp. So, Dave, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Uh, so Dave is uh, one of the first people kind of, I think probably the first person after Jack that I like seriously discussed hands with and, you know, kind of ev- every session midway or, you know, after the fact we'd send each other hands. So it's it's an honor to ha- have him on the podcast, kind of ca- come full circle here. Great to be here. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your, your background, your professional card playing background, as well as uh, some of that other stuff you do? Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, so I started playing cards during the poker boom, like during the online poker boom back in like 03, 04. Uh, I was in graduate school at the time getting a, a PhD, 
Um, and Atlantic City was about an hour away, and the internet was right there. Um, and thing about graduate school is you're really not paid well. I think it was making about fifteen grand a year as a graduate student, uh, which was not enough for beer once you counted in like rent and like beans for dinner. Um, yeah. And poker kind of hit me as this thing that I could apply my math skills and my like reading room skills that you use in like teaching uh, in order to actually like both have fun and bring in enough money that I could buy beers and buy coffee. Um, so I ended up playing kind of semi-professionally for about three years during graduate school. Uh, and then after Black Friday shut down the internet game, uh, probably spent about six months still playing semi-professionally uh, one, two in like rooms in Philly and playing in Atlantic city uh, realized that suddenly the hourly rate wasn't as good and I wasn't having as much fun. So I kind of switched gears and focused fully on getting the degree. Um, so uh, fast forward, I'm now a, a professor, um, just got tenure actually, which is awesome. Um, and I've got a, I don't play online anymore, but there's a, a local card room about 30 miles away from where I live. And so uh, maybe about once a month, I get to go out there and still play no longer professionally, but as like a serious hobbyist, like, Poker is kind of the the one big hobby that I still have in my life. Cool. And for for our listeners that don't don't know you and haven't taken poker trips with you, uh, it's not just any card room you have thirty miles away. <laughs> it's the Maryland Live. Uh, at least in my experience, uh, you know the, the best the best uh, low stakes no limit cash game is the United States. And I don't mean that as hyperbole. That's really I haven't played at a place that compares. Or well, I've played at a place that compares, but yeah, that doesn't make the comparison doesn't fully follow through. And Jack, I'm thinking of, of the, the card room in Florida, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's that's sort of a different story because it's so much smaller. I feel like it's... I don't know. I mean, it, it was such a dream, but I, there's something also beautiful about having like a card room that's always got like 40-plus tables running. Yeah, for our newer listeners, we're referring to a small uh, dog track that has a little card room in it that... Um, <laughs> is near where Jack's grandparents in Florida live. And we had kind of a magical, magical poker few days there. And the games were really good. Uh, I'd say at the two, five level, it was like an above average one, two game. Uh, Yeah. But the, but the volume, you know, that's the thing. Like if you're for people that are trying to consistently make money, whether it's Mm -hmm. semi-professionally, you know, maybe as a serious hobbyist or full time, Having a place like Marin Live is so good because there's just always going to be a game every single right. day of the year, you know, right. all the time. And it, yeah. And even even if you're not, you know, if you're just playing recreationally, that's still really nice too. There's just always a game. Right. What I would say, I mean, I, I play one, two, and one, three. I don't play two, five. And I think that matters because one of the good things about Maryland Live is that there are games above two, five, which means that the best players who want to play the highest stakes aren't going to be stuck at the two five table. Um, like there, there's higher levels to go to. Um, but at, at that sort of intro level one, two, um, I, I don't find Maryland live to be that much better of a game than I've found elsewhere in the U S or when I played card rooms abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think uh, I had some great sessions at the, at the, the bicycle out in Los Angeles about a year ago. Um, I just felt like people were making such basic fundamental mistakes about the, like sort of a slightly weird rate, rate structure that they had out there that I found that pretty easily exploitable. Um, 
New Orleans, I found to be like pretty, pretty easily easy to beat when I was out there. Um, yeah, I mean, so long as it's big enough that there's always a few tables going, I, I think that the intro level, like the, there's just sort of a, a set of basic mistakes or a few different types of basic mistakes that you're going to find. And once you identify them, then like you can have fun and make money. Um, but I haven't found Maryland Live to actually be that much easier than I, than I found most other card rooms to be, at least at that low level. Yeah, I think I'm I'm speaking almost exclusively to the two five no limit games. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's like That's, yeah, the two sure. five no limit game at you know Maryland Live, I'd say plays you know around the same level you're talking about as like the average one two game in the country, and at many times, uh, often even better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though there's a five hundred cap, the game is often very deep. They made it a six hundred cap pretty recently. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, it was a six hundred last time we were there. Yeah, I guess that's yeah. Forgot that little detail. Yeah, the other nice thing about Maryland Live, um, they pretty frequently now will have a high hand jackpot going, where if you make and the the, the lowest possible to qualify is like uh, aces full. Um, usually, you need to make like quads or a straight flush, but it's generally either every hour or every half hour. Whoever in the casino has the highest hand gets like between three hundred and five hundred bucks, um, which has this really nice effect of bringing in a lot of people who want who are always trying to play for that. So, like at one two in particular, you can make a twelve pre flop and you'll get three callers from people who are playing suited connectors, just wanting to see whether or not they're going to flop something high hand eligible. And then you can just like bet through, and they'll they'll fold like way more frequently than uh, they really should be because they're not thinking about like trying to like mute your edge. They're just thinking about like, hey, is this a hand that I could get five hundred bucks off of? Um, and that's the thing that I haven't found in a lot of other casinos that I think makes Maryland Live play pretty nice during those hours. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just the the management really understands that the best way to use the promo funds are just putting a lot of money into high hands and because they have a lot of tables and a yeah. big big promo fund they could afford to do it. So Cleveland actually in the month of June, Jack and I East got to experience it once. They did a thing where they did $1000 high hands from mm-hmm. 12 to 6 every Wednesday in June. And mm-hmm. you know, when you have that kind of level um of money being given away like that, you have a similar phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um but also I was going to say you said like it's generally between 3 and $500. They routinely have promotions where it's, you know, one, two, and I've even seen 3K before when I've been there. And I've yeah. only been there like 11 or 12 times, but I'd say like half the time I'm there, it's at least $1,000, at least at some point in my session. You know, it won't, be, it won't be that way for like the entire time, but, you know, and, I, and I've read Maryland Live kind of grinders on Twitter who mm-hmm. write about times when there's like a 2K high hand and just how crazy people are playing, you know? So, like, you're talking yeah. about what you're saying, calling $12 raises pre-flop. Like, now mm-hmm. I'm at the 2-5 level where people are routinely calling <laughs> 30 40 $50 raises yeah. <laughs> pre-flop and playing yeah. the same way. So Yeah. So, Dave, switching gears a little bit, uh, as we were enjoying our seafood buffet after a uh, negative session for both of us... Which, let's just note... People who want to go to Maryland Live don't get the seafood buffet. Yeah. Like, not a great choice. <laughs> Pretty bad. Um, you, we were you kind of... Go, sorry? Go across the street to the mall. Mall was closed. Oh, there you go. Yeah. 
too late. Yeah. But still don't get the seafood buffet. Wow. Yeah. So Dave and I were kind of talking about whether it makes sense to dedicate a lot of your time to studying and playing poker and, you know, kind of the lifestyle of playing semi-professionally and professionally and kind of did the, I don't want to say old man thing because you're mm-hmm. not an old man, but the, the middle-aged with lots of wisdom advice giving thing and it was quite helpful for me and I'm sure a lot of our listeners would appreciate kind of just going on with your thoughts about, you know, what it was like to play semi-professionally as you got a little bit older and, you know, kind of how you view poker now and, you know, how you recommend for, you know, maybe not me specifically, but the average person to kind of integrate poker in their lives. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I think that one of the main things that I was sharing with you that I can share with everyone, um, during the, the online poker boom, so we're, I mean, we're talking the height of it is like 2005, 2006. Uh, I'm in my mid twenties and like, I, I, I can re- realistically like wake up in the morning, like eat a bit of breakfast, make some coffee, and then like log into four table, four shorthanded tables of two four limit poker, and over the course of the day make like probably five hundred bucks. Um, some days you lose, sometimes you win, but like I, I that was like a realistic clear. It was like two fifty to five hundred, um, which seemed in the moment way nicer than like reading some books that I wasn't particularly thrilled to be reading, but I needed to read for like an upcoming paper that I needed to write for a class. Um, so the, the sort of short term incentives were really weighted towards poker. And I found myself for those years enjoying playing it a lot. Um, and thinking about making that the career, just sort of drop out, let's play poker full time. Let's be that guy. And one of the things that stuck out to me at the time that, cautioned me against it and in retrospect i'm real glad i didn't um is you'd have this day of like you know you wake up you play cards all day and then at the end of the at the end of the night you go to the bar with your friends and the only thing that you have to talk about is like this hand that i had like it it would be like going to uh like going to the bar and like what you're doing is just a poker podcast of like let's do some interesting hand analysis uh and my friends in philly weren't card players anyway so I wasn't interesting anymore. Like I would show up at the bar and on the one hand, like of all my grad student friends, I was the only person who had money because I was making money playing cards. <laughs> so I could buy beers, but I could buy, like I didn't really know what was going on. Cause I really wasn't like watching the news or watching TV or even wa- like watching a little sports, I guess. But like I was becoming an actively less interesting person because the only thing that was going on for me was at the online tables. Uh, and even if you make it like, in the, if you make it like, live poker tables, then maybe you'll have some funny stories about like what somebody did at a card room. Um, but it, like it, you just like really stop being well-rounded in a way that I think makes life in your twenties less fun. Um, so the thing that I was talking with you about and that I would say to listeners, um, if you are a winning card player, if you're somebody who like you have studied the game enough and you get enough joy out of it that you can bring in some income, um, then I think that that's great. That's certainly a nice thing to fall back on. Um, but the, the sort of dreary grind that comes up when you decide that you want to make this your full-time work um, is something that I think really be aware of because it, it's a very different job than other jobs where like, you know, I, in my job as a professor now, like I get to spend my days focused on something that I'm really geeky about and I really enjoy. Uh, but it also happens to be something like, 
you know, I have professional opinions about technology in the 2016 election. Like, that's something that people want to talk about at the bar, kind of. So, like, I can sound smart. Really? Yeah. No. <laughs> Shockingly, what Donald Trump does on Twitter, totally a topic of conversation. Whereas, like, the hand that we're going to discuss, if I tell my wife about that, she's like, um, okay, you, you got quad kings, okay? What, what does that mean? So what? That's, um, it's probably just in your liberal bubble like, in D.C., Dave. Come on. Care. What's that? I said it's probably just because you're in your little liberal bubble in D.C., you know? No, I feel like a lot of the country is really kind of fascinated by Donald Trump on Twitter. Like, I'm going to go ahead and state that. Um, In in different ways, yeah. That's your professional opinion, Dave. That's your professorial opinion. opinion. Okay. Fascinating. Uh, And certainly more fascinating. I would put money on there being more people who are fascinated by Donald Trump on Twitter than there are people who are fascinated by me getting quads that one time. If if you want to take that action, I will give you good odds. But I, I would make that bet. Okay. Um, Fair enough. Put put my money where my mouth is. I'm not going to right. take it. <laughs> Let's be Bayesians. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's just a really good idea to develop, like, like at most do poker semi-professionally, where it's a thing that you're bringing in some income, but to, to make sure that you're developing other parts of your life so that the only thing going on for you isn't just poker. Because it's actually, it's like, just a weird enough subculture that if like that's what you're spending all your time and like all your identity is invested in, then even if you're really good at it, I just think that you're probably going to end up having less fun and like experiencing like I, I think you'll end up experiencing few fewer like exciting things in your twenties if you're spending your entire time at the card table than if you're spending like you know some nights and some weekends at the card table. But then besides that, you're like working an interesting job or you have some interesting gigs or you like have just other things going on. Um, I think it, you know, this is going to vary for different card players. I'm not saying that like everyone listening to this podcast uh, is like empty if they're a full-time card player. I don't know them. Um, But I know for me, if I had turned full-time, I would have been one of those people who was logging like 14 hour days at the card table uh, and maybe getting like an hour at the gym. Um, And that would have ended up just being real dreary, a real drudge. I would have had fewer friends. I would have had less fun. Like that, that would have been, I think less exciting overall, regardless of how much money I brought in compared to like playing poker on the side for fun and to relax and to bring in some money. And then also having just all the other elements of your life. Yeah. I mean, that almost sense. It almost, I think has something to do also, not just with the sort of subculture aspect of poker, but, with the nature of sort of professional lifestyle, mm-hmm. the fact that there's no there's no set hours, there's no set uh, goals. It's just you know you could always stay for another hand, uh, and you can yeah. always be working. So, yeah, I think whether or not our listeners you know agree that. <laughs> Uh, being a pro poker player will turn you into a shell of a human. I think like it's really important for probably anybody and anybody's bottom line in terms of EV at the poker table to maintain a balanced lifestyle. And I think yeah. almost no matter what your career is, if you're like working more than 10 hours a day, uh, uh, you, you probably are not having the sort of balance in your life that will ultimately be most fulfilling. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I think, comes down to like when you're setting annual goals or like you know every three month goals 
like don't just set poker goals, but also think holistically about life. And like, you know, like what do I, what, what, what at the end of the next three months is going to leave me feeling like I'm doing well. And if all of your goals are solely poker and you, you expect that all of your goals are going to solely poker for the next few years, then I would posit, you know, five years, 10 years down the road, when you look back, no matter how much money you made, you're probably going to feel a bit of regret about that. So like set goals for other things. And if that means lots of time away from the table, then like take some time away from the table. The, some of my favorite two plus two threads, like the PGNC ones where someone goes from like, you know, rec player to epic high stakes pro, or just kind of like aspiring grinder to crusher. There's often a lot of goal setting involved. And I, I think you notice throughout the more successful threads um, that there are also other goals, you know, like often very much related to like gym and working out um, and reading different books or traveling. But, you know, kind of the most interesting threads, most interesting people and consequently often very good card players do have those other goals in mind. And speaking, Mm -hmm. speaking from personal experience, I've, you know, gone between like, playing full-time professionally and playing semi-professionally primarily during the summers between uh, my undergrad education. Uh, I've had two summers where it's basically just, you know, full-time poker studying and playing. And those were definitely like the two most unhappy times I've been in my early twenties, just hands down. I can also, they were also very important for me in terms of my poker development. But mm-hmm. I think I definitely would have been happier and a little bit less regretful in retrospect if maybe I took a little bit longer uh, and just you know did what I did in those few months just more systematically over the course of six or nine months. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, an- another thing about the sessions, Dave, is because you only play once a month now, typically when you play, it's kind of like an all-night bender almost every time, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm actually recently working on changing that. Um, okay. So yeah, the the way that it's been for a while now has been, um, like as as a married professional uh, with like responsibilities and a dog. Uh, <laughs> often, what happens is if my wife is uh, out of town for work for a few days, then uh, I'll like go and spend like eighteen hours or something playing cards, and that that way, like I'm home with her when she's home. Uh, and when she's gone and I'm caught up on work and everything and I don't have to like be at the office, then I can like just go and do that for a day to relax. Um, I'm now old enough that if I play overnight, I'm kind of wrecked the next day. So what I'm instead trying to do is, is, uh, like play like, I don't know, 10 AM to like 10 PM and then come home and get a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. And if I pull that off, I think I can probably play twice a month instead of once a month. So like, that's one of my mini goals is actually to cut down on the like mega benders, though they can be fun. Yeah, but you're you're increasing your volume by a third. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's one way of looking at it. So the problem is the most profitable time by far at a one-two table is like four a.m. Because the people who are arriving at four a.m. to play cards uh, are usually uh, not great card players. Let's say they're, or, they're usually totally exploitable. Yeah, or, I, oh, sorry. I got. I felt pretty uh, disciplined leaving last night when I said I was going to leave after mm-hmm. like some some pretty favorable favorably smelling opposition <laughs> sat down at the table. Yeah. <laughs> hey man, don't yeah. jo- don't joke about that. Sometimes you know they could have just had a rough day. Yeah, but, but there I'm, are also like I, I will often my Achilles heel is there will be 
a person who you can see just like, you know, they've got $800 in front of them at a one-two table, and it's because they're incapable of folding top pair, but, like, somebody who had, like, ace-king against them, like, got it all in on the turn against their, like, ace-deuce, and then the deuce banked the river, that kind of thing. Um, or, you know, like, they have to chase every straight draw, even if it's a gut shot, but they, like, hit two in a row. Um, and it's real tough to get up when it's, like, midnight yeah. or it's two in the morning and they have 800, and you know within the next two hours all of that will be gone. And it won't necessarily go to you, but it will, it will go to one of nine other people. And so it's like, do I really want to drive home this hour, or do I want to, like, try to be the inheritor of that $800? Like, that can always be tough. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When you think in terms of, like... In terms of win rate, it can sometimes be easier to leave. It's like, if you're deciding, like, am I going to stay another round? And then you sort of think you're, like, unhappy to be sitting in this chair. And you think, like, I guess I'm probably, like, making, like, $8 to stay this round. Mm-hmm. Then then you have, like, a, a much, I think, better type of decision. It's like, is it worth $8 for me to sit here for 10 to 20 minutes? No, I'm going right. to leave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What I, I actually think that less directly about win rate or about is there someone at the table who I'm specifically targeting that I think is extremely profitable. If it is late at night and there's not somebody at the table who I've like set up a plan for and I'm waiting for that plan to come to fruition, then it's time to get up and leave. Um, which translated to win rate basically means like, is my win rate astronomically high because I'm just waiting for the spot where I'm going to get too much money or not? If the answer is no, then come on, go home and go to sleep. Yeah, I was talking with a prospective student uh, kind of about this phenomenon. Uh, he kind of similar to you, Dave, like can only really play, you know, maybe it's not once a month, but it's like a few days a month kind of hard because he doesn't mm-hmm. live near any card rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's it can be very tough to not want to play kind of until you absolutely hate it and are so tired if you're playing so infrequently, especially if it was a bigger part of your life, you know, earlier um, but yeah, I think it's, it's almost always going to be the best decision to kind of set a time that you've kind of figured out based on your experience at the poker table is the amount of time that you could play poker well, very profitably on your A game and still enjoy it and really yeah. stick to that unless there's some kind of like radical exception. Because as, as you've said, Dave, like when you're playing one, two at Maryland live on a weekend night, like it's always going to be from like good to amazing game, you know? So, like, what's the opportunity cost of you staying there, you know? There's some times where it's, like, this occurs more at the higher stakes. Like, this happened to me a few times in Cleveland where it's, like, the 2-5 table on a weeknight, you know, doesn't always get off, and then it gets off, and then you're there at 11, and then it's, like, five-handed, and there's, like, one guy who thinks you're a big fish and then wants to play heads-up with you all night. That's happened Mm -hmm. to me a few times. And then it's, like, yeah, am I completely dead the next day? Yes, but, like my win rate during those hours was, you know, in the hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So yes, it's worth it to do that. But I think a lot of people think of those kind of sessions or Mm -hmm. similar things they've had where it's like, they did stay that time and made an extra like grand or two grand. uh, And then kind of trick themselves into believing that that can be like every time they play. And then like, if you only play once a month, a few times a month, every time you're like leaving, like mentally drained and like, why did I just do this? You know, yeah. so I, I think setting like our kind of our stop losses, it mm-hmm. can sometimes even be more important than setting like a monetary stop loss, depending where you're at. And I found, 
you know, it's more true when you're thinking about not necessarily your just bottom line win weight, but you're kind of enjoying life. And I think a lot of people would be a lot happier if they left after eight hours at the poker table, probably even closer to four or five, but like eight, I think is where it's like, even if you're a professional, like, you know, how, how, how can you do those epic sessions again and again and again and not, you know, have some part of you that isn't burning out a little bit. Right. Yeah. Which for people who are listening to this and really want to translate it directly back into poker terms, like if you are well rested, well fed and happy in other parts of your life, you're going to tilt less guaranteed. Like you are like, if the only thing going on in your life is maximizing win rate and then you run into the spot where, like, your aces get cracked by uh, under pairs, like, six times in a row, which mathematically will happen in your life. Like, there's just not a lot that you have to fall back on, and that's going to make you more tilt-prone. Well, well, tilt is... I think that's probably true, although I think tilt is, regardless of your, you know, mental well-being, or maybe not mental, your physical well-being, tilt is something... Maybe that's a slightly separate issue that should be addressed in a slightly different manner. But definitely, you know, in terms of tilt, for sure, and also in terms of playing your A game, totally agree. Yeah, something Jared Tendler talks about in the mental game of poker is that, like, you know, you're not superhuman, and if you haven't done a lot of mental game work to start, it's okay to have mm-hmm. something like a stop a stop loss. Like, now, I, I, I almost never say, like, I'm going to stay at the casino for X amount of hours. I used to do that. But now I just know myself and trust my judgment, even when it's you know slightly impaired. If I want to stay, because I've done it enough, that I know that I can execute good judgment there. But even if you're a really smart, successful person in other avenues of life, it's really hard to do these things well the first few times in poker. And it's not kind of you know giving up or like being weaker to set these kind of mental game rules for yourself to prevent tilt. Because there's kind of two things you have to do: one, prevent situations where you're going to tilt, and Mm -hmm. if you find yourself tilting, leave, and then there's the harder, kind of more lifelong thing, which is discovering why you tilt, and kind of working on yourself psychologically and emotionally, and, Mm -hmm. you know, preventing that uh, from happening, and having strategies where instead of having to leave, or having to set some type of, you know, arbitrary barrier, you know yourself well enough to know when you should leave, uh, and if you find yourself tilting, when it could otherwise be a profitable situation or you're in a tournament, you can't leave. You have strategies to continue to play, you know, your A or your, your B game. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. All right. Cool. So, uh, I think that's, yeah, I think that's like an awesome, an awesome conversation. That'll be really valuable. Do you guys want to move on to the hand? Yeah, I was, I was, I've been wanting to kind of talk about those things on the podcast and it's nice that we got to have the chance to talk about that in this level of depth. I think it's something a lot of people think about and would like to have. Uh, and Jack, we should also do this more in depth another time, but like, you know, myself included, it's always interesting to hear like where the good games are and kind of contrasting places. So I think it was also good. We talked a little bit about that at the beginning. If you guys want to talk about international games someday, I would totally be game for that. Cause I've been starting to, I've now gotten to play in what London, Barcelona. Oh, in Melbourne, and uh, no, it might just be how, those four. Um, how are the games in London? I'm I'm going to be there in a, about a month. Wait, Jeff, you're, you're going to be in London? Yeah. You never told me this. <laughs> I'm going to be in London. <laughs> nice, dude. <laughs> and I'm, so yeah, played... I'm going to be in London and Ireland and Scotland, yeah. Oh, good for nice. you. 
Um, yeah, so I played at, uh, I think it's called the, the Vic, um, which is sort of the, the best-known casino. It's, in, it's near uh, um, Paddington Station. Um, one, first, one nice thing to know about that, uh, if you bring U.S. dollars there, they will uh, trade that for pounds and give you, like, a receipt. And if you bring back that same number of pounds by, I think it's, like, 2 or 3 in the morning, they'll tell you the hour, then they'll just trade it back for your dollars immediately. Um, oh, which, whoa, that's awesome. So that that's with amazing. You said? No, yeah, no, no fee there. That, that will just be straight in and out. Now, the rest of any pounds profit that you made are going to stay pounds. Yeah. But basically, they, they will take your dollars, they'll convert them, and they just set those dollars aside, and they will give them back to you if you come back with that money. That is oh. a, that is amazing. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's um, awesome. Wait, wait, Dave. I'm thinking of, you know, in our last conversation, I've told you I've kind of been into this credit card stuff and manufacturer spending. They don't let you deposit American dollars with a credit card, right? <laughs> uh, I didn't try to, so I don't know. Jack, but look, I, at, look yeah. into that when you're there because that would be very helpful for people in the game of manufacturing spending to get credit card points and airline miles. But sorry to interrupt. Something to, something to think about. Um, so the rakes in all these other countries are higher than they are in the United States. Sometimes ridiculous. Like Sydney, the rake for their 1-3 game is a, they have a $5 time charge and it's like 10% of the pot up to like, I think, $10. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Just that's like not worth it. Unbeatable. Um, but so they can do that because they're only allowed to have one casino per city and it's government regulated. So they, they're charging monopoly rents. But that also means that all of the gamblers who want to play poker are coming to that casino. So the play is extraordinarily like, I, I think it's a very beatable. I, I don't, I don't believe in the, uh, like the threshold that people say of like a rake of X dollars means that a game is unbeatable. Like I've never fully bought that because that depends entirely on how bad your opponents are. Um, and with bad enough opponents, any game is beatable if, with bad enough opponents who have unlimited funds. Uh, any game is theoretically beatable. Um, and the play, at least at the low stakes in Sydney and in Melbourne, was was weak enough that, like, sure, I was only playing a couple sessions, so we can call it run good. But, like, I was getting, like, $100 calls from hands that absolutely would have folded in the States in any casino. Um, so, yeah, the game is good there. The game is surprisingly tough. At least when I played in Barcelona, I found it surprisingly tough. Uh, it is their low stakes in Barcelona was I think a uh, it was a two hundred big blind buy in so I was playing one two and people were buying in for four hundred um, uh-huh. so that's great for deep stack um, but they actually I was I was pretty impressed with the play in Barcelona uh, and it's a small enough casino with I think it was like only one two and two five that there were pretty talented players who were playing low stakes with you um, London I want to say it was like a ten ten dollar cap maybe. Um, or 10-pound cap, um, and the play was not as bad as Sydney, not as good as Barcelona. Um, I felt like it was a slightly more beatable game than most of the ones I'm used to in the States. Yeah, so for yeah. all these places you've played abroad, this is when you're there for some type of professional-related conference or thing, and then you just have the chance to kind of check out the casino there? Yeah, my, my new thing that, I, that I'm trying to implement uh, is if you're flying to a new country, if you're flying to a country and somehow it seems like I always am arriving at like 
six or eight in the morning into that country, fully jet lagged with, you know, at least a six hour time difference. Um, and the rule with jet lag is you're supposed to stay up, keep yourself up until like 10 or 11 at night so you can get on the local time schedule. So what I do is on that day, which is like reserved for being completely bewildered and jet lagged, I drop my stuff off. I go to a casino. Uh, that means that I'm not obviously not going to play my A, a game because I'm jet lagged. But time moves differently in a casino than it does everywhere else. So I'll like just go sit at a casino until nighttime, and then go home, and then I get on my local on the local schedule. Um, and like poker time moves different than normal time. And like you can, I think I, I at least have played long enough that I think I can like zone in on a poker game in a way that I couldn't if I was like like having a big co- professional conversation or like giving a like talk about my research. Um, so yeah, I, I try to like on the first day that I've arrived when I'm going to be fully jet lagged, like go and play some cards until local evening. Yeah. It sounds good. It's also probably a good way for you to get to meet people locally, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Like, yeah, you're going to, you're going to be more social there. And I think that's something. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've played a, abroad once in, in Germany and it was, it's pretty cool. Uh, got to, you know, meet people that I wouldn't have otherwise met. Um, in my normal journey. Uh, but yeah, thanks for the tip about the, the, the exchange rate thing, because that's something that I always think about. Uh, well, not, I guess not always think about, but you know, I've played in Canada, which I guess I didn't really consider a foreign country when I was thinking about this, but I played in Canada and Germany mm-hmm. and both times it's like the rake is a little bit higher than what I'm used to. And then I know I'm getting fleeced on if I win any serious money on the exchange rate. Oh yeah, so yeah, yeah. I mean, in Australia, they'll allow you to trade dollars for Australian dollars, uh, and they don't take any, they don't take anything out of that. But then they don't let you trade back. So, like, my bank bankroll now like has a few hundred Australian because it just wasn't worth it to trade it back. And I figure someday I'll go back to Australia and I'll still have some Australian bucks to spend. Yeah, at least you're only getting fleeced if you win. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's not particularly comforting though, right? <laughs> yeah. So you you basically you're getting like slightly fleeced or you're getting fleeced out. Or you lost, money. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get to withstand some variance. Yeah. It's the positive outlook on a losing session. 